Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast, where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maytree's popular Lunch and Learn program. I'm your host, Gayatri Kumar, and I'm a communication specialist at Maytree. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of Five Good Ideas, we invite an expert from the nonprofit or corporate sector to share five practical ideas on a key management issue facing nonprofit organizations today. In the session you're about to hear, originally recorded on November 27, 2018, we look at how to address diversity in grassroots nonprofit organizations with Maya Roy. In her presentation, Maya draws on her own frontline experience. She offers five practical ideas around participatory community development, online tools that can help upskill your team, intergenerational job sharing, job shadowing and management training, and finally, the challenges arising from today's backlash against vulnerable communities. Maya Roy is the CEO of YWCA Canada. She's a diversity specialist with 20 years of experience in a variety of sectors in public policy development, public health, adult education, and social work. She has extensive experience working in marginalized and disadvantaged communities and is skilled in human resources, financial management, grant writing, and project planning, as well as in strategic communications and marketing. Here's Maya Roy with her five good ideas on addressing diversity in grassroots nonprofits. What I wanted to do today is just talk a little bit about some of my experiences and my learning journey to give you a sense of the context before I dived right into the five ideas. And also, it was very kind of Elizabeth to describe me as, as an expert, but I certainly don't see myself as such. I'm interested in, in doing good, effective work, and a lot of what I'll be talking about is also coming from just my own personal experience and being a cisgender, heterosexual woman of color, obviously you're going to see even limitations around the diversity um, as I share with you my experiences. So I know as we move into the conversation part of today, um, I'll also be doing a little interactive exercise to get folks moving around a little bit after, um, after my talk. I'm really also looking forward to hearing from you some of your best practices and solutions and things that you think do work or don't work. So, I was asked today to speak around diversity, and I'm going to talk a little bit about sort of what got me into this work, but when we're talking about things like diversity, I also think it's really important to unpack that a little bit and actually talk about inclusion. So when we're looking at diversity, yes, especially here in Canada, you know, whether it's the melting pot, you know, all the metaphors, the melting pot or the tossed salad, um, Yes, we're diverse, but are we truly being inclusive? Do people truly feel like they have a sense of belonging in the kind of work that we're doing? And as leaders, as leaders in this sector, how do we start to create that? How do we hold that space? How do we make that space? And also, how do we support each other if we're coming from marginalized or vulnerable communities that can be really challenging also doing, doing this work? So, um, wanted to start off with a little experience that I had at Newcomer Women's Services uh, Toronto nine years ago, and some of my colleagues uh, are actually here uh, to join me um, as support, so thank you. So, it's 9 a.m., and my colleague and I are running up the Danforth, hauling bags of refreshments, and on this cold morning, I'm asking myself, who on earth selected a frigid Saturday morning in December 
to hold a 9 a.m. focus group. So I'm grumbling as we're running up the Danforth, and then I realized, well, that person was actually me. So at the time, I was about four months into a new leadership role as executive director, and I really wanted the members of our Saturday program to decide on our coming program, on our programs for the year. So as my colleague and I, we arrived breathless in the boardroom, there were actually 30 newcomer women waiting there, and they said to us, where were you? They scolded us. They'd been waiting for about 10 minutes, and uh, they're very prompt. They knew they were coming on a Saturday morning to do strategic planning, and they wanted strategic planning. So in 2009, I became the executive director of a women's settlement agency that was undergoing a painful transition. And I spent my days living and breathing this organization and working to support a community of women. And I find when we're using language to describe diversity, and especially talking about diversity and inclusion for newcomers, for racialized community, for black and indigenous folks, our language is painfully limited. Because what I saw every day, and I'm sure many of you are also running these programs day to day, I saw women seeking their voice and standing in their own power in daily workshops. I saw young, self-identified women smashing oppressive stereotypes in self-defense workshops. And I saw women from over 65 different countries creating bonds of support in our LINK ESL class as they recreated their new lives, their new pathways in, in Toronto. So when we're looking at smaller grassroots organizations, I find that the organization is actually very much like the women or program participant that we support on a daily basis. Just like them, the organization struggles against the challenges of racism and sexism and transphobia and anti-black racism. Just like them, an organization goes through periods of ups and downs and has moments of crisis. It grows, expands, sometimes contracts. And just like the community members that we work with, sometimes we need a bit of a first aid kit to identify problems and work to rebuild relationships with our community members, our staff, our funders, and consult with our membership to rediscover their thoughts and concerns. So for me, in this particular role, it meant many hours sitting in meetings, not unlike this one here today, chatting with our stakeholders. And at times, this was both frustrating and exhilarating. So there were endless meetings discussing about what our organization does well, mapping out how and why we lost our way, and deciding how to move forward. It also meant hours of listening to women's frustrations, fear, rage, tears, and their hopes, and dreaming of building a more responsive community-based organization. For myself personally, and I'm sure many of you here can relate with this, it meant 12-hour days of poring over budgets, cajoling donors, and writing endless grant proposals, all in the hope that the organization would stabilize and start to push boundaries and through that, start to offer settlement programs that were really important to newcomer women in, in the East End of Toronto. So because of that, it wasn't unusual for us to be hauling groceries on a Saturday morning so that we could start to engage with our members around a dialogue about their lives and needs. So because I was late, I realized I should have definitely set my alarm earlier, as our members never cease to demonstrate their commitment, and that these are savvy and skilled women 
who will spend three hours discussing strategic planning in the middle of their hard-earned weekend. So this experience of living and breathing an agency um, for the last couple of years um, really brings us to our questions here today. So what does it mean what does it mean to have inclusive, collaborative leadership? Um, and what does this look like for smaller organizations? Um, and what does this mean when we're creating new systems and unpacking these really powerful ideas, not just about diversity and inclusion, but a lot of times around exclusion? So since I'm a relatively youngish um, racialized executive director, the most common reactions I receive when people meet me is either of disbelief or pure condescension. So I don't really think these reactions are a reflection on my skincare regimen. Um, I think it's more society's dominant attitude towards young women of color in positions of leadership. But for myself personally, it's inevitable that I ended up working in this sector and doing this kind of work. So being a second-generation Bengali-Canadian woman, like many of us, I grew up very privileged to be a part of two contrasting worlds. So being a member of the Bengali diaspora in Canada really created a set of experiences and a foundation of values that I wanted to ground my day-to-day -day practice in. But it's also led to daily reminders as a racialized woman of color that I have to work three times as hard to get maybe half as far as some of my counterparts. And I think as someone who was a second generation woman who grew up in suburban southern Ontario, it's that profound understanding of isolation and that sense of being an other. So when we're talking about being othered in middle class suburbs in the 80s, it had this very sort of quiet, menacing quality to it. So there was that silent exclusion and covert hostility of your neighbors, your classmates, and your coworkers. There were rocks flying in the air from moving cars as you walked home from school, or a textbook that's aimed at your head during research, recess. It could be the teachers who every year dutifully inquired whether your parents can speak English, and regularly being asked if you were the, the new exchange student in town. So that was sort of 1980s, 1990s new market. And then there's that anonymous hiss of the, of the word Pocky as you cross the street. And, you know, we can't forget sort of the stares that we get on the bus or being, being informed that you smell like curry. So if there's one thing I've learned is that racists aren't really too sophisticated about their food cuisine or, or their geographic accuracy. Um, but I find that this absence of actually, this absence of community, this lack of belonging, that's what shaped my world back then, not so much anymore, but back then, and it certainly influenced my professional life. So what I really believed going into this line of work is that there has to be a way, there has to be a way that even within our structures as not-for-profit organizations, as social service agencies, a place where we can build community, where folks of all generations can come together and really create their own intrinsic spaces of belonging and find some commonalities across diverse relationships. And I also wonder about, especially for folks like myself who are second generation newcomers, we actually have an advantage. 
And I, I wonder about it lying in our insider-outsider status, that we're living in these dual societies, so it actually allows us to look at the world and actually look at our work through multiple lenses. So for example, for me, um, I may not be fluent in my mother tongue, but I understand my language and the cultural nuances of my community and also the impact of migration and the intergenerational trauma that comes with that. So even though our peers and the social elite may not accept us as fully Canadian, we definitely understand those power dynamics of Canadian exclusion and how inequities are perpetuated. So being both an insider and an outsider lends us to a certain set of skills and experiences. So all of these years later, I find working myself at YWCA Canada, and I feel like I have a sense of what is my political project. So going back to those two questions, and what does diversity look like? Um, I'd like us to think about inclusive collaborative leadership for smaller grassroots organizations. And when we're talking about diversity, I'm sure we hear the term diversity thrown around a lot. I mean, the M&Ms that I had this morning for breakfast were very diverse. They were diverse, different colors. Um, but was it, what does inclusion look like? And really, there's sort of three buckets I'd like us to think about. And the exercise we'll be doing um, here after, and also for those of you um, who are at the office or at home, uh, we'll be going through them. So the first one is around individual choices and actions. So what are some of those individual choices we can make um, within our organizations? The second is actually about creating systems. What kind of systems do we have in our organization? Do we just kind of do things as they've always been done and think, oh, well, we've always done it that way, so why don't we just sort of keep on doing that? And the third is all of these really powerful unexamined ideas. So we like to think of our organizations as being neutral and well-intentioned and doing really, really good work for diverse community members. Um, but what, what does that mean? And at the end of the day, I think we need to interrogate power. And how do the power dynamics actually play themselves out in, in our organization? So let me sort of dive into the five ideas, and then during the discussion, you can tell me if you think it's useful, or if you think it's a load of dung, or maybe somewhere in between. I don't know. It can go either way at this point. Um, but these are sort of some of the things I've been experimenting with, and, and we've had some, some interesting uh, successes, and I'll sort of give you a, a few sort of mini stories along the way. So as community organizations, What's sort of our major, our major resource, our major asset as, as social service organizations? Anybody want to throw out some ideas? Sorry? People. Yeah. Anything else? Women. Women. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure folks can also t tweet at home. Any other resources or assets that you see? Language. Absolutely being able to speak or understand multiple languages. Anything else? Yes, diverse life experiences. Passion, that drive, you know, that gets us up in the morning every day. Yeah, certainly not the salary, unfortunately, given, given our funding. Yes, our clients, who we work with, our purpose. Yes, ideas. Any, 
Did you have some examples of particular ideas? Yeah, new ways of doing things. Yes. Communication. Communication when it goes well, and communication when it doesn't go so well, well, we all know what that looks like, unfortunately. So I would agree with all of your answers, absolutely, especially in our sector. 95% of our work is people. And 95% of our work is the staff work that goes to working with other people. So what I wanted to argue is if we start to invest in HR, which unfortunately is very rarely funded, that we can actually start to think about inclusion and diversity in some different ways. So for example, a couple of years ago, um, we had a number of, of funders come to us and they wanted us to do work and they were really concerned around the issue of forced marriage in certain communities. And again, you know, as you know, many of you I'm sure get that phone call like three days before fiscal year end and they're just screaming, diversity, diversity, we need to do something about this. And so it was pretty much one of those phone calls, but we can never turn down free money, yes. So, um, and what we decided to do around um, looking at issues of forced marriage, I can't pretend to be an expert on forced marriage. It's an incredibly complex, layered, and nuanced set of circumstances, cutting across many different communities, many countries, and many explanations. And when we start to look at our service users as actual staff or consultants, there are some ways to play with our program model um, that we can shift power and shift power imbalances, but actually get some really, really interesting results. So rather than going out and just sort of hiring one staff person to be an expert on forced marriage and to run around, I guess, either screaming diversity or recruiting a really diverse group of faces that you know would then be plastered on a poster somewhere, um, we were also really concerned about we didn't want to play into stereotypes of gendered Islamophobia, and especially in post 9-11, really, really problematic. We were also at the height of the Stephen Harper cuts, where he was referring to many communities, um, including communities experiencing forced marriage and communities that have respectful arranged marriage as barbaric. So when you have the word barbaric in an actual piece of legislation, you sort of know where you stand with a certain set of policymakers. So we hired uh, 35 young women from different communities um, to essentially attend uh, a three-week leadership camp, and we called the camp Fight Like a Girl. And we hired them as consultants. And the funder wanted us to do a communications campaign. Um, and unfortunately, uh, I am not well qualified to do a communications campaign with today's youth. I look like this. I wear a suit. I am not Beyonce. I don't know what Snapchat is. So we hired them as consultants to essentially pull together the communications campaign. But we wanted to do it in a way that was ethical and supportive. So we partnered with some really great community partners like Shameless Magazine and OCAD and Window Women's Self-Defense. And the self-identified young women and non-binary youth, they did anti-oppression workshops in the morning with some of our community partners. And then they did self-defense in the afternoon. By about week two, they started transitioning into developing their own communications brief and started pulling together spoken word and flyers and essentially what they, this was sort of just when Twitter had, had started. 
Um, and uh, they pulled together their own communications ca uh, called Use Your Voice and actually started tweeting about different issues as they saw them to policymakers and politicians. And what I saw was something really quite incredible, and you're more than welcome to go to the Newcomer Women's Services Toronto website and some of their work sort of still lives on there, is that the level of engagement, rather than running around and having to worry about bringing in all of these outcomes for funders and doing all this outreach, we had a really engaged group of what we call them as consultants. They were thrilled because for the first time their skills and expertise as young people were being recognized. Um, also ask a group of young people and tell them that you're going to pay them to do social media for a week. Folks, folks are pretty happy about that. There was no, there was no human rights complaints from during that orientation session. Um, but what I saw, you know, on a very selfish level, just as someone who was an executive director, is not only was the quality of the work and the quality of the program so much more interesting, um, it, it allowed us to really to do the work on a deeper level and have some more complex conversations and start to hear about how do we talk about forced marriage? How do we define forced marriage? And also to see the young activists or the consultants, how they grow and developed in between sort of these, these chunks that we were doing with them. Um, so for example, one of them, uh, her friend was actually being attacked in her stepfather's home and actually used her window self-defense skills to actually intervene um, and, and sent the attacker to, to the hospital. So, you know, very sort of practical, practical kinds of skills. And so when we're talking about these big things around diversity and inclusion and stopping gender violence, um, what does that mean? Another issue around diversity and inclusion that's quite common is elder abuse. Has anybody here ever gotten a call for proposals around, stop elder abuse, just stop it? <laughs> and again, some of the most challenging issues to talk about if you're working with community members who are experiencing elder abuse to have your own children or grandchildren as perpetrators. The taboos around that are simply enormous. So again, uh, what we did is we hired them as consultants. Uh, they, We know we have a lot of... Um, aunties with incredible skills in writing and arts, and they actually, again, had that deeper conversation. So rather than me running over to you and saying, okay, stop elder abuse now. Have you stopped it? Great, my work is done. Diversity, my diversity is work is done for the day. They wanted to really start to have those intergenerational um, conversations with their grandchildren because they felt like it started there and actually started telling traditional stories and put together a coloring book for them. So again, we were able to have a different kind of conversation, a very different kind of outcome, and we were tapping into the skills and the energies of community members who really, who, who had a lot to share. So yeah, think about hiring your service users as staff. Online tools. Another thing that we see a lot is sometimes, especially as we're promoted into management or leadership positions, sometimes we don't necessarily have the time and money to run out and get an MBA or a management degree in Schulich. And one of the things we started experimenting with is taking different modules from online courses and actually doing them as a team or assigning them to placement students or to each other or actually working through a set of exercises together. So in your little handout, um, you have okay. Learn at Work. They do amazing stuff around gender violence. They also have an incredible, they have the Positive Spaces campaign, which looks at how to 
create inclusion for LGBTQ plus newcomers. Um, and in Coursera, if you plug in things like human resources and financial management, you start to get some really, really good courses that come up where you can just literally take a section. So for example, how do we set expectations with employees? How do we start to do coaching? They'll have a workbook, they'll have a podcast, and when we started to go through some of this together, um, we're doing it right now at, at um, certain tables at the Y, we again started to have a really richer, different experience. And the more we invested in HR, we found a lot of those, a lot of those fires that we're fighting all the time as senior leaders, as, as um, employers started to started to shift. Acumen has amazing courses around social impact and human-centered design around empathy. And we started to apply some of those modules. And for example, we realized our website was not accessible to newcomers. Um, some of my colleagues have re recently done that course, and we redesigned our, our website for the why. Um, so again, not all of us have corporate experience, and sometimes it's thought of as too businessy. Um, but there are ways of sort of bringing in some of those skills with, with your management team. Has anybody here ever heard of intergenerational job sharing? So one of the things we hear about a lot are millennials. Oh my goodness, millennials, they have sort of killed everything. Um, I was wearing my YWCA pin the other day and one of our young women of distinction leaders came up to me and she said, Maya, I need, I lost my pin. I need, I need another pin like that. And I said, oh sure. I said, you can have mine until we order you another one. She said, no, 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 Maya, yours is some weird color. I said, mine was rose gold. And I'm like, you millennials and your rose gold. So now I have to go running. Yeah, Isabel, we need to get rose gold pins. Just, yeah, okay, your phone is, is, is rose gold. Um, we also have really experienced baby boomers who have retired or are retiring or want to scale back um, into part-time work. And we actually started looking at jobs that could potentially be shared by different people. Now, obviously, this is not for everyone. You need to have a certain level of trust. You need to have a certain personality type in a relationship. Um, but for example, with some of our youth youth employment worker positions, we had really great experiences where, for example, I poached a professor who was retiring from a university, and they actually job shared that position with a young, a young person who actually grew up and lives and has lived experience in that community. So again, we weren't necessarily looking for having that perfect piece of paper. And I, you know, some of us were, were chatting earlier, some of you were doing job development work or, or work with youth. Um, and it was really interesting to see that balance because from the professor, there was all of that academic experience. She was actually an executive recruiter in the States and in England. Um, with the young person, they really understood what young people were experiencing in terms of systemic structural barriers. And they were able to work. They were able to work together um, quite well. And for those of you having to hit Employment Ontario outcomes, you know it's not easy. And that was sort of one way we were able to do it while bringing in some, some balance. Um, although the day that um, a former Ryerson professor called me and asked me what a poop emoji was, um, was really not the highlight of my career. I said, I said, just ask, ask so-and-so. Um, we shall never speak of this again. <laughs> so, because apparently it was coming up in workshops. Um, and she needed to know. She, after publishing 12 books, she needed to know what a poop emoji was. 
Um, so similar, similar along that line. Um, also sometimes switching jobs. So once we did a, a take your colleague to work day and people actually switch jobs for the day and especially for jobs that are devalued, for example, in childcare, it was really, really good to see to have senior level managers or staff in other departments actually experience what it means to be a childcare staff running after screaming snotty-nosed children um, and have to do that for $16 an hour, right? So what are some ways um, that we could also start to exchange skills? We also scheduled a couple of days to do peer learning and peer exchange. Um, Isabel and I just came from one of our retreat sessions and one of our colleagues is doing peer training and peer skills today. So again, sometimes we don't get the funding to do the kind of professional development that we would like, but there's online tools, you have skills in-house, there's sort of a number of ways that we can build capacity internally. It was also really important for me as an executive director that all of my managers actually be skilled up to be able to step in to my shoes after I left. So when I would leave, I would make sure that people were actually appointed in term ED. Um, at which point when I came back, when our head of finance was um, interim executive director and had to sort of help start a new program from scratch. And when I came back, she just looked at me exhausted and said, Maya, I would never want to do the ED role. She's like, I like my numbers, and she started to like hug her computer console. Um, and absolutely, that's okay too. Sometimes, you know, to find out there's things that we don't want to do. But I think especially for newcomers where there's still so many internal barriers in our sector, when I go out there and work with other organizations, I don't see senior leadership reflect the community and the programs. Um, so that's also one way. And just to sort of wrap up before we do um, the exercise, Looking at ways in terms of dealing with the backlash, I find that the more we do really, really good equality or equity work, um, diversity work, that there's a backlash. And how do we deal with the backlash? Let's not pretend that there are people who necessarily want this work to be a success. When we do diversity and inclusion work well, it does mean that certain people are going to lose power. There are people who benefit from a lack of diversity. When we start to shift power imbalances, they're not very happy, and they tend to usually have more power than us. Um, I also think it's okay to, to state things like Trump has now made it okay to be racist. We're starting to see that. Um, we've seen that ripple effect policy-wise, politically across different countries. And so as community members in spaces like this, I think it's really important for us to A, organize, and excuse me, and B, actually talk to each other about what we're experiencing on the ground and how do we support each other at work. If you're a colleague who's experiencing anti-black racism, what does it mean to have support in your workplace or outside of your, of your workplace? YWCA USA, so we're YWCA Canada, um, the American version, um, I'm really proud of, of my sister organization's work in the States. They have been at the forefront of being against Trump at a time when it wasn't necessarily politically sexy to talk about separation of families and denying rights of asylum seekers to families. And we're very quick to organize. And so I think it's okay, especially as larger organizations where sometimes it's hard for us to talk about diversity, I think it's okay to take risks. Um, a couple of weeks after I started 
the uh, the hate rally, the neo-Nazi rally happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I started monitoring it on Twitter online Friday night, sort of watched it throughout the weekend. And I Googled the community because I've never been to Virginia. And I saw that there were actually three YWCAs within driving distance and 11 YMCAs. And so first thing Monday morning, I called them and they didn't have a CEO of uh, Alejandra hadn't started at the time. And staff were terrified. They're like, we don't know what to do. They've applied for paperwork to do a permit to do another neo, uh, to do another Nazi rally the following week. We don't know if we should keep our daycare open. We really don't know what to do. I said, well, what do you need? We'll send buses. We'll send, you know, I talked about the counter marches that were happening here in Canada. Um, and so, no, in that moment, we couldn't stop it, but I think it was important for them that they felt heard and that there were folks reaching out from other countries who were following this and watching it closely. And we actually issued a solidarity statement that was shared over 14,000 times. And it's really interesting when I'm visiting YWCAs in really small towns and I have working class white women coming up to me with tears in their eyes saying, I felt so proud when I saw that because I can't stop what Trump is saying, I can't stop what happened, but I felt proud to work for an organization that would actually stand up and be on the right side of history. And of course, some of you might remember, there was sort of that weird 72-hour period where Trump hadn't actually denounced. Then, he, you know, he was, and then like Campbell's Soup issued like a scathing condemnation, and the, his Trump's business council like dissolved itself over that. Um, so I think it's okay as bigger institutions, when you're experiencing pushback from a manager or CEO, organizations, especially today, we need to stand for something. It's not just about being on the right side of history, but community members, donors, funders, they want to know that you stand up for something. We, you know, having a charitable status is an enormous privilege. Um, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, when Trump dropped the paperwork around the Muslim ban, ACLU just simply tweeted out, we'll see you in court. Do you know how much they raised over a single weekend? $10 million in a single weekend. They weren't scared of Trump. They weren't scared of a very favorable climate for him. Uh, I remember one donor, if there's any Star Wars fans here, uh, I remember one donor writing in to ACLU on Twitter saying, I love you. And ACLU tweeted back to him and said, I know. So, you know, how you engage with activists as donors, as members, um, it starts to build a different relationship. So there you go, diversity work. Um, there was, uh, I'll just leave you with a final quote. At the end of that meeting, I had sort of started talking about me and my colleague running up the Danforth at nine in the morning. And when we had finished our session that day, one of the youth came over to me. She was around 12 at the time and in our Saturday program. And she just said to me, you know what? I know there's nothing that we cannot overcome. And I thought those were good words to end on. You know, speaking truth to power. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to 5 Good Ideas with Maya Roy. We link to Maya's 5 Good Ideas, her resources, and a full transcript of today's session in our show notes. All of our 5 Good Ideas sessions from past seasons are available on the Matri website at matri.com forward slash 5-good-ideas. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.